Just a disclaimer before we go any further, uh, this podcast and the content being spoken in each episode, uh, it can be heavy for some people, especially Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people. We speak of massacres, uh, we speak of deceased Aboriginal people, uh, we may mention our names or places as well. Uh, welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go any further, I would like to pay my respects to the country on which this podcast is being recorded. And I would also like to respect the land on which my guest uh, is speaking from and also where the listeners are listening in from as well. I would also like to uh, pay my respects to all the Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till as early as the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to resist. I would also like to pay my respects to all of our mob across this continent. In each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars and these are our war stories. In episode 18, I yarn with Uncle Dale Ruska from Stradbroke Island. Um, thanks for joining me, uh, Uncle Dale. Um, before we go any further, can I get you to tell us your mob and your country, please? Yeah, no, firstly, thank you both for um, giving me the opportunity to share. I'm a Guru man from the um, Bay Islands of uh, Moreton Bay, southeast Queensland. Um, I come down through um, Aboriginal family groups on the island, known as the Ruska and the Morton families. I was raised by my Morton family, who are uh, Gurumpul Yagara people, and through my Aboriginal kinship um, bloodlines, I have Gubbi uh, Gubbi bloodlines, uh, Yagara bloodlines, and uh, Gurumpul bloodlines from Stradbroke Island. Uh, thanks, that Unc. Um... We've known each other for quite some time now um, uh, and obviously through the relationship uh, with your daughter or one of your children, uh, Pakiri, uh, you know, uh, we're both members of WAR um, and, and over the years we've you know, uh, got to um, interact and sort of you know, come to the island uh, or see each other on the mainland as well. One thing uh, that always sticks clear to me um, when you're around... Uncle Dale is uh, how well you can hold space and tell a story, um, which I've always find amazing when 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 we're having conversations with you because, um, yeah, like you like you 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 you, you carry so much knowledge and um, one of the reasons why I wanted to um, interview you is because of that knowledge that you do hold. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a vast amount of knowledge, um, and obviously, you know, we were, I want to talk about frontier wars with you uh, today. Um, just sort of yarning before uh, we we started recording, you mentioned uh, the significance of Stradbroke Island uh, when when we talk about sort of southeast Queensland and frontier conflict uh, conflicts. Could you tell us a bit about uh, the significance of Stradbroke Island uh, in the early sort of settler uh, uh, times when they were in invading uh, southeast Queensland? Or what now is known uh, as southeast Queensland because I'm sure it would have still been the highest point, uh, sorry, the furthest north of the New South Wales colony. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right, Bo. But uh, just before I do, if I could just start with a couple of um, comments, I'd like to really acknowledge the the um, what's come from war and the efforts of war and the fact that it come from a few of these young people and your visit to the um, northern nations of uh, uh, North America and interacted with the resistance mobs there. Mm. And the values brought back from that, and then what I've seen in the few years um, since that's occurred with war and the effect that that's had on our own people, especially all of our young people, and uh, how that effect is now causing a big conscious awakening of the white people of this country. And I'd like to acknowledge that what you have done and congratulate you on your effort and encourage you to continue that effort further. So, my great compliment to you all. I'll just um, on that really just, quickly, Unc, like we wouldn't be able to do things like that um, if it wasn't for people like yourself, you know, many other elders uh, and sort of older 
you know, people who are just sort of older than us who gave us sort of the space, the energy and the time to sort of build ourselves up and, you know, support us as well. So, you know, uh, thank yeah. you for long. He's done a marvellous job and he's um, playing a marvellous role on behalf of our people because he's uh, using your efforts and what you've done as a voice of truth and that's really important for us as Aboriginal people. Um, this, um, with regards to Stradbroke, or firstly, just before I, I, I comment on the um, co- colonial era or the frontier times, um, with myself and how my um, connection of belonging comes, and that's something that I really value as very significant and important, is due to the fact that um, as part of my Aboriginal family, I was immediately connected through my upbringing to my great grandparents who. Um, were named Alfred and Lavinia Morton, and um, my great grandparents re- uh, raised eight of their own children coming out of the Myora Mission area that we'll discuss uh, shortly. Um, that was located on the island here, and they moved into a place called Wamore, where a lot of us still reside. We've moved away and we've come back to it, and we reside here on the basis of our blood right. and under colonial common law, we're still considered as illegal occupants, but we disregard that on the basis of our sovereign values. Um, but it was as a result of that original upbringing and the connection I had to my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, and that really embedded the values and the pursuit of my values then throughout life as a original First Nations person, Guru Puguru man from these islands here, and the embracement that I received from my great-grandparents and then from my grandparents' generation and the, the families after. And that embracement was really important and valuable to me because that was what gave me my identity and my meaning. And when I talk of my great-grandfather, Alfred Morton, he was one of the last uh, properly initiated tribal men from Stradbroke Island here. And if we look at, if we go back to his great-grandfather, who he would have experienced that same sort of embracement as I did with my great-grandfather, the beginning of the colonial frontier era era begins at the time of his great-grandfather. So it's like just over two spates of um, six to seven generations, this direct connection of our meaning and our values and our belonging has just clearly transitioned and been valued and appreciated and continued. So that's very important to understand about why some of us are the way we are as Aboriginal people and why we continue to resist against colonial controls and colonial impositions of common law against that of our original First Nation ancient sovereign law. So that's something important that needs to be understood, I think, because the voice that a lot of us express is the voice that a lot of Australia doesn't really want to hear because it conflicts totally with the the national or nation's values of this country as a nation of, of Australia. So going back to then the content of the discussions with um, the frontier era, there was a few events that occurred for us here prior to the conflict development on Stradbroke Island. And um, we were the very first island that come into contact with uh, European people or the islands come into contact with European people. And uh, like Captain Cook sailed past here in 1770 and he renamed one of our old sacred places and gave it the name that it still exists by, known as Point Lookout, from its original name as Malumba. Um, he didn't land, but he just continued on his way, and that was in 1770. And then in the late um, 1700s, another man come up through the southern end of the bay, and his name was... Uh, Matthew Flinders, and um, he only got so far, and then he come back again a year or so later, I think it was, after he'd been shipwrecked from that original trip up north on a place, they, I think they call it Shipwreck Reef. Um, he come back to the island on his way back down south, and his crew had run out of water, and he was actually the first man to set foot, first white man to set foot on Stradbroke Island. And he encountered our people at the northern end of Stradbroke Island. And um, at that time, I think our people would have understood fully what was going down in the southern countries and New South Wales in the frontier times. 
But regardless of that, uh, in response to Flinders' indications about the, um, them needing water, our people directed him to where he could obtain water and that gave him the resource he needed and he just went back out on his way further south. Um, several years after Flinders encountered our people, another group of um, white men were washed ashore on Morton Island or Gumpen Island and I think that was in around about 1803. And those um, men were part of a crew that were timber cutters and they were out exploring for um, good cedar stands and they were expecting to go south from the um, New South Wales occupied areas. But as a result of the storm, they were blowing well off course right up to the southeast Queensland region here and a few of them died on the way. and. By the time the boat was washed ashore on Morton Island, only three of them had survived. And um, yeah, those men were pretty well lost and they were just on the um, southern side of Cape Morton, which is another really old, ancient, sacred place of our people. And they travelled across the um, tip of Cape Morton to get to the very northern beach on Morgumpin Island. And upon the um, arrival at the beach, the first thing they um, walked into was a fairly significant Aboriginal village of our style of um, Ubi structures. And uh, at that point, from the um, information I've read, the village was nearly um, isolated because the people weren't there, but the village was obviously maintained and they encountered a young child playing on their own. And the young child freaked out, obviously, seeing these three white men, really ragged and um, almost starving, appear out of the bush. And he ran into uh, uh, Umpi, as far as the records go, and his mother come running out, who also panicked at the sight of the three white men and then ran and then uh, um, husband indicated straight away, once she'd got him, to the woman and child to both run. and. This is um, before there was any um, communication, supposedly, with white people. And the Aboriginal man stood there and just sort of raised his chest, apparently, and said to him, what do you want from me? Do you wish to kill me? Because that must have been communicated all the way up here through our cultural networks as a result of what was happening down on the frontiers of the New South Wales um, areas. So um, that was the very first direct encounter um, at that time. And for our people to be able to communicate that in English, it's pretty hard to believe. Um, those men went on anyway and they ended up living with our people and our people looked after them at um, a place called Pullen Pullen or Amity Point. And um, from there they were helped to um, and shown the way to get to um, the mainland and the sad part with the story, and you can see these um, all of the correct information of it in the records of um, Parsons, Finnegan, and Pamphlet. Um, as they went, then they just dismissed the um, hospitality that we'd been displayed or had been displayed by us and our ancestors to them. And they come across a canoe up at a place called Gumpy that's still on Stradbroke Island, it's now known as Dunwich. And they actually stole a canoe then at um, Gumpy and they paddled to the mainland. And as, as they travelled around on the mainland, they still had this fear about engaging with our people, even though we'd um, looked after them for a few months prior here on Stradbroke. And um, when they come across our people out fishing and, and harvesting the resources of the bay, when they found their stores and their canoes, on the um, closer to the shores, instead of asking for food or anything, they just thought they had the liberty to just go and steal the fish and steal the resources of the Aboriginal people. And they continued on their way, but nearly every place they went to, they just thought they had the, the privilege to an entitlement to just take what they wanted. So they stole canoes and um, used whatever they wanted of our, of our mob. but. Regardless of that, our mob still showed them at every encounter they had uh, nothing but hospitality. 
And anyway, they ended up um, being found down towards the Logan River by um, John Oxley, I think his name was, who was um, exploring around the place. And yeah, they ended up going back down to the southern states. But they couldn't. And if you look at all the records, what they couldn't believe was how many Aboriginal people there were, and how occupation, and how there was even. Um, governing and, and councils and and structures within our society of people that sustained our occupation and our interaction with each other. And in one of the early settlers' um, responses to what they'd witnessed, they couldn't wait to get back to the southern states to inform the early colonists of the fact that the land was not terra nullius and that they'd encountered it here in the Bay region, including the, the Brisbane people as well. Um, so that was sort of how contact began here for um, this, this part of the country. And then a few years after that, and after they'd realised there was the Bay here and they had the beautiful harbourage that they needed, safe harbourage and... Um, they realised that the river was there and how uh, advantageous it was for the establishment of a settlement to have the Brisbane River there. Uh, the penal colony um, commenced, and I think it um, started in, in around about 1823. Um, so by the time the penal colony had um, commenced, there was already uh, establishments here on Stradbroke Island, the first one being the pilot station that was set up at the place called Pullen Pullen, or which is now known as Amity, or that was the name that they gave to it, Amity, because at that time um, they believed due to the nature of our people and the interaction between um, Aboriginals and the um, non-Indigenous invaders and the fact that there was no disharmony at all displayed that the place was actually Amity, a, a place of unique beauty and unique harmony, and that's why they gave it that name. Um, as time progressed, uh, but um, they then uh, established a second development at the old ancient village of ours that had been occupied, and archaeologists through their analysis proved that the ancient village of Gumpi on um, Tanjeri or Manjarabar had been occupied in a uh, continuous, unbroken sense as a sedentary um, village for at least 6,000 years. So significance just of the importance of that place uh, is very evident. Um, that was the very first place where the storehouse for um, the pilot station and the penal uh, settlement was built. And again, um, at that point of time, there was originally no immediate conflict or, or dispute. Uh, as time then progressed, um, before the um, end of the 1820s, a lot of conflict was developing and the original conflict started to develop um, due to the way that the um, early white settlers treated our women and the way that they thought they could just take advantage of and, and use our women for their own convenience. and. Mm that type of behaviour was responded to by our Aboriginal men because it was totally unacceptable within our system of values and our system of laws. So conflicts arose immediately over that and those con conflicts further developed and um, there was um, in the following times after that when a bit of, uh, I suppose, racial, racial resentment started to develop and um, a bit more animosity grew towards our people being here and um, white people wanting what we had. Uh, further conflicts developed and, and around about, I think it was the late 1820s, uh, they wanted to take uh, further control of our place. So they used their own people again. They got a couple of Aboriginal men to force the old chief from the Pullen Pullen area um, into a boat that they uh, indicated, that the, the pilot indicated, the white pilot, that they were gifting to him. Um, they forced him into a boat and they rowed out from Pullen Pullen, um, the two Aboriginal people accompanying the pilot, 
and the tribe observed it all from the foreshore and as they got out into the deep water and this is very confronting and very horrific but it's a reality of what's recorded and the, the truth of history um, they grabbed him and um, the pilot decapitated him and after the pilot decapitated him he also removed his testicles because that was a common that was a very common practice within the colonial times and how they um, treated their men and they took them as a trophy and a lot of them carried them around as tobacco bags and it was a very fashionable commodity of the early colonial times and um, also the taking of our body parts and the taking of our people's heads. Um, they'd take them and bottle them and, and take, send them overseas and that and use them as displays and trophies in a sense and um, yeah, that was just a horrific time horrific time so what that time caused was one of the men of that time who was a, he was only becoming man through ritual and law um, who couldn't just couldn't digest the, uh, the horror that he'd experienced rose up and his name was Ulipi and Ulipi rose up and he ended up hunting um, both those Aboriginal men down and he killed them both here on the island um, as, as payback for breach of law, breach of custom. Um, as a result of that then, and around that time, he also confronted the um, storehouse that was at Dunwich. He started getting the mobs together and he confronted the storehouse at Dunwich and uh, one of the soldiers at the storehouse um, indicated that he was going to punch him and Yulipi just drew his spear and just told him outright, you do that on my place, I'll just kill you. And uh, what happened with the storehouse in Dunwich and due to the intensification of conflict um, was they had to build two build, uh, two build sorry, two brick structures and they had to put a 15-foot high brick wall around both structures and the attacks were that frequent, frequent from our people upon their intrusion of our place that in the end they had to dig an underground tunnel from one of the brick buildings to the other just so they could um, move in their own um, structures in, in safety from attack. Um, the attacks further then escalated and in response to um, Ulipi taking of an axe and um, retaliating against the, the pilot and the Aboriginal men that uh, um, murdered the old chief, um, the conflict started to intensify and there's another man who would frequently visit the pilot station at Amity and he'd um, travel down there from up at the Gumpy area here and uh, the pilot would be really alarmed and the pilot's wife would be really alarmed because he'd walk straight into their camp and straight into their vegetable gardens and just fill his dilly bags up with the food that they'd grown and he was more or less taking the rent taking the rent for people being on his land and he was confronted then by the pilot and the pilot come out with his musket and drew, uh, pointed his musket at Canary and Canary looked at him and he obviously knew the potential of muskets from the cultural networks of our people. So Canary and right beside him at that time there was a, a, a sheep, they explained it as a jumbuck, uh, grazing right next to him. So Canary apparently reaches over with one hand, grabs the sheep, lifts it up and draws his stone knife while he looks at the pilot pointing his gun at him and yeah, cuts the sheep throat and throws it over his shoulder and just turns and walks away. So that was the time our people were, were starting to retaliate against the, the things that were um, being introduced as a, a result of colonial occupation in the very earliest times. Mm. So, the, sorry, Bo. Well, I was just saying, I'd, I'd, like, uh, very interesting, Unc. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to get more into that as well, but before I get there, um, there's just some interesting things that you did mention. Um, you know, when, like, the mob sort of had their first interaction with white followers uh, uh, on Stratty and stuff, you know, um, one thing that sort of um, caught my attention was when you said that, um, you know, it, it may have been the first sort of white follower that uh, touched uh, the island, um, but yet mob, you know, th like you said, through that sort of grapevine, you know, through those, you know, that, 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 that history of what was happening down further south, mob knew how to sort of speak English as well. Like, um, 
were there stories of how mobs sort of, you know, like learned English or sort of, um, you know, learnt sort of where they where they sort of knew how to in, in, interact with sort of uh, white followers as well? Um, and and that's yeah. sort of the first thing, you know, like, you know, are you here to take from me or are you, or are you here to kill me? Like, um, you know. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether there were stories, but when you look at the circumstances of history and the circumstances of ourselves, um, like sometime long before um, the um, English arrived here on this country, like on Stradbroke Island here, uh, um, uh, a, a bloody a Spanish galleon washed ashore in 18 mile swamp. So there must have been contact a lot earlier than um, the first contact with the um, English Europeans. And that was known in history. A lot of our people knew of that Spanish galleon. But then when you think of ourselves and how big our kinship networks are, and like um, when I, um, I tried to explain earlier the extent of the kinship network that I belong to through Aboriginal bloodline, which more or less encompasses a significant majority of southeast Queensland, um, so all of the people within that kinship um, region were all connected to traditional law and, and, and customary practices, even though they were all of differing um, language groups. Um, we sat next to another um, big um, tribal nation group that extended down right over the border of New South Wales. And then if you look at the kinship group and the tribal nations group after that, we're more or less in, in the frontier places of um, early settlement down in New South. So it wasn't really that great of a distance, especially when you consider... Um, that it was 1788 that colonisation started down there and then it was about 20 years later that it commenced up here. Within that 20-year time for information to be able to transition over those um, few Aboriginal nation areas, it would have been nothing even for people to transgress over that um, area throughout that 20 years. Oh, yeah, because... I remember when I was chatting with uh, like Ray Kirkhove and even Libby Connors um, and we were chatting and, and I was sort of chatting about how um, how many sort of resistance leaders there was sort of in South East Queensland and the, both of them said there was there, 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 there was uh, much more than sort of the names that we do know like Dundalee or or um, Multaga or Moppy or, you know, like, um, they're sort of like the common theme ones that we do know. They're more sort of heavily focused, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, learnt about and, and taught about more so than sort of, you know, um, the frontier conflict that happened sort of in other parts of southeast Queensland as well. And, you know, I, I remember I was when I was chatting with uh, Ray and also Libby and I was saying, you know, were there ever any interactions between somebody like Maltagara and Dunderley seemingly because their nations are, 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 are sort of adjacent, sort of uh, neighbouring uh, tribes. And, you know, they mentioned, oh, you know, there isn't any, any recorded sort of European accounts, but that still doesn't mean that Aboriginal people or these two individuals or any other sort of resistance uh, leaders um, were sort of having these conversations. And <clears throat> just by what you're saying as well, um, due to sort of the the the, the kinship uh, and sort of the I guess you could say the locality of sort of where the mob are, these things would have transferred and they would have had this conversation. Oh, without, without a doubt, and we just got to look at the um, ancient practices of our people, and even a lot of the earliest historical records verify that. And there was times, and the, the reasons why a lot of the ceremonies of um, Bora were organised were around the, um, the seasonal production of natural resources and um, I've been told a lot of this by ancestors before me that are sadly no longer here and at the times of um, ceremony especially um, which could be for um, uh, Bora rituals to go through all the various initiation levels or for the arrangement and settlement of marriages um, Mobs interacted across vast areas of land through through kinship and, and tribal governing structures, and I know that uh, that um, interaction for us from the islands here extended out as far as the Bunya Mountains, and there was areas there in the Bunya Mountains that were allocated for our people when we were visiting there for ceremony and to 
to go through the, the bunya times and bunya seasons and in return when we had the really big sea mullet seasons here on the island or the really high shellfish, increased shellfish um, growth due to environmental circumstances, um, the invitation in return was extended out to the mainland tribes and some of the early historians recorded when there was um, literally thousands of people gathered here on Pullen Pullen on North Stradbroke Island for big ceremonies and that network would have just um, been repeated from one big collective of nation groups to the next. And that interaction, that was an ancient interaction that our people had. And um, then there's even documentation and, and quite a lot of documentation about the conflicts our people had, the intertribal conflicts and um, how those conflicts developed and like the... the uh, you mentioned earlier Moppy, and I've, um, I understand a fair bit about Moppy and the role Moppy's played in our resistance. And sadly, there was conflict there with our people um, in those early times. That was just part of the old, um, ancient conflicts um, systems, I suppose. And um, it involved inter-tribal warfare between our coastal people here, led by Ulipi, uh, against the mountain tribes that were led by um, Moppy and. Um, there were in those those battles or that actual battle that occurred between the intertribal groups. There was um, close to two thousand men fighting against each other. Sadly, and um, it's unfortunate that our people didn't realise what was coming in the wave of colonisation around that same time, and didn't all unite in our defences, similar to what they'd done in the Calcadoons and. We might have had a greater chance of, and probably not in the long run, but at that time for a short period to be able to resist for a lot longer. Um, yeah, but you can't sort of break something that existed for tens of millenniums prior to colonial um, invasion and imposition of their value systems and everything else. It was just the reality of our people's history. And do you think you know, through sort of earlier interaction with Europeans um, and, like, before sort of, you know, our mob uh, started, you know, uh, uh, fighting with them, um, do you think, you know, through our, um, I don't know what we would call it, like, uh, our governance um, practices, you know, we tried to um, implement, you know, everything else bar sort of, wanting to, to have conflict with Europeans? Um, Without a doubt. Mm, mm. Without a doubt. And some of the very first colonists, and a lot of them weren't all European, some of them were Portuguese and um, some of them were Kanakas and there was um, even some Indians and that, and was, most of them resulted from being convicts, being released early or escaping. Um, but uh, those people, a lot of them were actually initiated through ceremony into our tribes and into our law. And they received the markings and uh, um, entitlements of, of society as a result of those initiations. And as time progressed, they intermarried with our people and their children um, become our people. So that, that natural interaction definitely occurred and it was something definitely that we didn't just display outright resistance to. We sort of, in a sense... Um, accommodated or, or um, welcomed that interaction to occur. Um, it, it was as time went on and as the abuses and the open um, development of the, I suppose the best way to explain it is the white privileged attitude, the white assumed superiority of rights entitlement started to develop. And if we go back to Ulipi and what happened after Ulipi done his actions against the pilot and Aboriginal people, and these actions against the um, the storehouse in Dunwich, um, conflict really, really developed further. It intensified enormously, and there was outbreaks of violence all around the island here. And a lot of those um, violent errors are recorded as skirmishes against the blacks. And I know from what I was taught as a um, young child and growing up, and from what my mother um, drummed into my head, and I've got to acknowledge my mother. My mother was Donna Marie Ruska. Um, she taught me as a child that um, we were the survivors of an undeclared war. 
And as I grew and I searched and I obtained further information and knowledge, um, that's just so fairly accurate. We are the survivors of an undeclared war. And how it commenced here was um, after Ulipi's first encounters was the governor of the penal colony that was in its early stages of establishment sent a significant number of soldiers to Stradbroke Island to hunt down Ulipi and to hunt down the Stradbroke Blacks. And um, those initial attacks, and there was attacks prior to that, there was a war, our people talk of a war at Adarok where we had to defend and fight against the soldiers. Um, then there was another war at um, Amity Point, just on the uh, uh, Amity Point end of Flinders Beach. Um, there was another uh, war fought at a place called Yarrow Point, which is just out of Gumpie. Um, and there was other skirmishes also over on Morgumpin Island after that um, initial time. And um, so in the lead up to the big battle that occurred over here, which was known as the Battle, or we call it the Battle of Anugarwai, and it's recorded as the the, the Battle of Kurum Kurumpa, um, an outright battle, an outright war um, broke out on Stradbroke Island, and that war was fought over several re weeks, and um, the soldiers were here more or less to exterminate the Aboriginal people who were resisting colonisation. And um, after several weeks of fighting and moving over uh, half a dozen uh, kilometres in conflict through really um, sort of um, harsh environment, being swamplands and creeklands on the island here on the um, edge of the island where it's all um, mangrovey, muddy areas, um, at the place known as Nagawai or in the vicinity of Nagawai, um, our people ended up overwhelming the soldiers because of the strategies we employed in our defence against their attempt to conquer. And as a result of us understanding how muskets work back at that time and um, knowing that there was time needed in between, our people um, developed more of a, um, what do you call it, a guerrilla style tactic of warfare where they only attacked when they knew they were, they were safe and most of the attacks occurred at night. And our people had a pretty unique um, weapon on the islands here that was developed on the island and it was half boomerang and half nulla nulla. So the men would sneak in at night um, time when the soldiers were all huddled around the fire in the light of the fire and one or two of them would launch the killer boomerangs into the fire, not even naming at the people. Um, and then jump straight back undercover and, and take cover in a sense. And the soldiers had just dis all displaced their muskets and at once shooting into darkness. And our people knew that they had a few minutes then and they'd just launch a severe attack on them with spears and nulla nullas and boomerangs. And before they could reload their muskets, our people would be retreating back into safe cover. And as a result of those tactics and thus, um, Keeping the um, pressure up on the, the soldiers at that time, uh, 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 at the end of a few weeks, a truce was called by the soldiers with the Aboriginal people and that that first war on Stradbroke was ended with a, a big feast and a robbery which the soldiers participated in with our people. But unfortunately, due to the nature of that um, colonial supremacy and co colonial superiority, the governor at that time couldn't accept that the um, blacks on Stradbroke Island were that strong in their resistance to the um, demands of the colony. Um, he sent further soldiers over here and they were able to arrest Ulipi and by the time they arrested Ulipi, Ulipi had received the name from the, the white settlers as Napoleon because he had this really um, distinct look and a really strong appearance in his look and they believed he looked just like the Napoleon of Europe. And so they caught him, and when they eventually caught him and they set up the um, prison to hold him in, they gave that prison the name St. Helena, the same as the prison they built for Napoleon in Europe. But because it was all on our Ulipi's country, he simply just um, built himself a, a bark canoe and paddled out the same night back to Stradbroke that they'd tried to imprison him. And <laughs> what happened then was further conflict developed, and uh, there's a time where there's a bit of a gap in, in information, but a lot of our people talk about how many soldiers were sent over, and, and it's important to note that um, those attack, attacks on Stradbroke, they were um, 
Royal Navy commands, and I'm um, not sure, I think it was um, as a result of General Gustavos, I think, giving the command through the Royal Navy um, to for the military. So the military only needing war. So the military at that time um, commenced in our area the undeclared war upon our people. And um, at that very first um, instruction given by Gustavus, um, he instructed the attack on Tasmanian blacks, the attack on the Port Macquarie blacks, and the attack on the Strabroke blacks. And the attack on the Strabroke blacks was done by a commander named Clooney. So the conflicts broke out, but then sometime after our first war, we considered it as our first successful defence or resistance in the Battle of Anugawai. Um, in our stories, um, it talks about how lots more soldiers were sent to the island and then they forced a lot of the, um, our warriors down to the southern end of the island and that was the last scene of the, the big um, numbers of our warriors. And then sometime around that same time, as a retaliation to the Battle of Nagarai Wars, another group of colonists went to um, Mulgumpa, Morton Island, and it's known in history of the Aboriginal people, or quite a few of us. They then just massacred all the people that were there at the big um, village on the southern end of Morton Island, near a lagoon known as Mirapool. And our people went back later, and we know these stories because apparently an old lady and a young boy ran to escape the massacre and hid in the bush and witnessed the rest of their people being murdered. And uh, they communicated that onto the rest of the tribe that weren't there. And then later they went back and collected all the bodies and buried them. And then, like, that's horrific. And that was only like, I'm only talking five, six generations back from um, my grandfather, or well, not even that, four, four, five generations back from my grandfather's generation. So it would have been well and truly alive in their memories as a result of um, the, the knowledge transfer from their grandfathers to them. Just sort of in wrapping up, Unc, as well, um, one yeah. thing that I like to say and that I have been saying a lot uh, throughout this podcast is that um, history, like, it, it really informs us about our relationships. Um, do you believe that, you know, um, and and other places around the world, you know, like um, uh, South Africa went through, like, this truth-telling sort of period, um, I think, you know, over the last five to ten years, I think, uh, in Canada, they've been sort of doing this truth-telling uh, process as well. Um, do yep. you do you feel through the, the process of truth-telling there can be real change uh, from understanding what has happened in this country? You know, because at the moment as well, uh, we see sort of at, you know, at the national sort of Aboriginal discussion, um, there's this real conversation about, you know, constitutional reform, um, you know, a voice to parliament and, yeah. you know, um, do you feel that, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm always frank about it as well, like, you know, I don't support uh, those campaigns. I believe that, you know, that the, there are other sort of conversations um, uh, that are needed to uh, to be had at that same level um, as well. And, 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 and me personally, like where I'm going with this podcast as well, I feel that, you know, the truth telling aspect of it needs to be first before any other sort of national discussion as well, because uh, there are lots That's of right. people, exactly um, right. there are lots of people, our own mob included, but there are lots of other people in this country who just don't know what has happened. Um, yeah. And I feel that, through their lack of knowledge of knowing what's happened, it has um, guided their understanding of our people and hence their treatment towards us as well. So just, yeah, do you feel that yeah. uh, truth-telling... Sorry, go, go on. Could I quickly get to that? I, I, I won't even go into detail, but like after that era of the early 60s when we were given the eligibility through law to equal wages, there was a couple of other developments in common law which led up to the 67 referendum, which removed a couple of articles out of the Constitution, which gave us a bit more social advantage, but not political or legal. Uh, we've seen then after the 67 refer referendum, the establishment of the 72 embassy in Canberra and how our people nationally just um, displayed our resistance to the colonial oppression and control. Um, what resulted from 72 was we've seen the first land rights laws um, be developed um, we, were, we were offered land rights here in the 80s and we rejected it because of the, the grounds of what was being offered. 
Um, that land rights era was followed as a result of Mabo. This is a very important point for us in our colonial history. Um, what happened at Mabo, the biggest thing that happened at Mabo was through his efforts, so he forced the High Court of Australia, the highest judicial authority in the whole legal structure of Australia, to overturn the doctrine of terra nullius. I mentioned earlier that that doctrine of terra nullius was the very foundation of all common law, so it puts a big question mark, that decision itself, um, and how it come down when they overturned the doctrine of terra nullius about all common law that's been developed after it. So if they overturn the foundation of it, it puts everything into a state of fiction where it's not legally legitimised because we haven't endorsed it as First Nations people yet. So there's a big question mark over that. But we've seen that era then be followed by the native title era. And what's happened as a result of the native title era, and I'll stipulate clearly, I believe land rights and native title and a lot of the things that have been offered to us through parliamentary processes are all just um, tokenistic offers designed to assert our people into legitimising the validity of colonial sovereignties, um, control and ownership of our lands and, their, and ourselves and everything about ourselves. And throughout that whole era that I've just mentioned, starting from the beginning right up till now, our people, those that are, aren't just willing to comply and accept what's been imposed upon us, have continued to resist. And there's also been those assemblies of councils that have gathered um, regional and national support for the continued um, representation of that resistance within Australia as a society. Um, Leading up to, or well, firstly to another really important point, and you know, I think you know of Michael Mantle, and I've known of Michael for some time, and he mm -hmm. raised the question back probably close to 20 years ago now, and he put that question out nationally, and it was a very important question that I took a lot of regard to, and I sort of throughout my life analysed its meaning, and he said, um, are we um, Aboriginal Australians, or are we Australia's Aborigines? And that question just played on my mind for a long time until I resolved it in myself and understood clearly that I was one of Australia's Aborigines and I was a Gurumpukuru First Nations man of my ancestors' land. And I see us now at a point as a result of the imposition of usurping or coercing some type of laws such as land rights and native title, we're caught in a position of moral division as a people and we're divided morally, and we'll hear a lot of our people talk about the fence and how they're just willing to sit on the fence. And like we've got these people that are trying to retain our own original values and meaning that are trying to remain rooted to their heritage and the importance of their heritage on behalf of our, our original ancestry and their tens of millenniums of soul enjoyment and occupations of a land that we, we belong to and we own through custom and law. Um, we're fighting against ourselves and the others that want to just go with the advantages and privileges of what's being offered through common law processes, which is neglecting to address the the full issues. It's it's um, more or less about getting us to legitimise the validity of common law authority and common law governance and common law controls. So I explain that as we're being, we're now in a, 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 a conscious moral tug of war over offensive morality. And that's one of the first things that our people have to correct. And that goes back to the question you were just asking. And several years ago now, as a part of a national Aboriginal on the day celebration, um, the, the theme was promoted of voice treaty truth. And I actually responded, and I'm, I'm not an academic, I've only got a grade 10 education, but I responded to that the best way I could, and I'd done a, peep, a paper about it and um, called it Voice Treaty Truth Black Conscious Alert um, because I, I think the, even the order of words can influence our society. And um, when we look at that Voice Treaty Truth, around that same time, you was there with me and quite a lot of other people mm -hmm. we were sitting down on the bum the skip at the Gold Coast um, in our Camp Freedom demonstrating the Stolen Wealth Games. And that's a significant council of a, four, a significant example of the council formation of a region of people representing resistance. So at the same time as that, and around that time, and I know and I credit my brother for it, Coco Wharton, as a main part of the efforts of the um, Camp Freedom the embassy, uh, the, the skip on the Gold Coast was that we demanded a um, royal commission into uh, um, 
the colonial history and we wanted a full-on truth, truth commission mm. as a priority and we've seen that as important. But then in response to that as a mechanism of usurping or coercing that was promoted, um, that we go through this process of voice treaty truth. And in my paper, I questioned how could we have a voice when we're divided and when the voices of our people are usually handpicked by government on our behalf and that it's only the voices of those people that are handpicked that government is willing to listen to. And I know from my own experience over decades, if you speak the voice of resistance and you speak against what you believe to be unjust controls or unjust impositions, they don't want to hear that voice. So they even chose the voice. So then they suggested straight after voice that there be treaty. And how can you have a treaty if you don't have a united voice? Following treaty, they said we need truth. So how does the order of the assembly of those words have any um, value um, in process meaning for us as First Nations people? So in my consideration of that, I thought that maybe in consideration of just that, which I believe is the way that needs to go, is the, and before I get to the consideration of those three words and the, what, how they've influenced, the following NADOC theme this year, our last year was, um, and you'll, you'll know the same, when we march through Brisbane and we're feeling proud, you know, we're proud, we're strong, we're people, we're marching against injustice. Um, one of our main chances always was, always will be Aboriginal land. All of a sudden, the NADOC theme is always was, always will be. No Aboriginal land at the end of it because through processes such as native title, they force us to relinquish all our land into their system and to their land tenure structures and we just become a joint party to their ownership. There's no recognition of our ancient ownership. If, um, if that theme, that second theme was correct, always was, always will be, they'd follow it up with Aboriginal land. And through native title, those ancient titles of, of land would be just recognised and just instated in common law. That doesn't happen. So going back to voice treaty truth then, and in the order of the words, um, I believe the first thing that's needed is truth. There needs to be a full investigation into the historical truth of this nation. And that inf investigation needs to be conclusive and it needs to be accepted by all Aboriginal people as complete. Once truth has then been investigated, then it needs to be exposed because there's, we're only 3% of 97% in the public, um, on the um, population democracy of Australia. So we're nothing when it comes to being able to manipulate um, political um, progressions or legal progressions. Um, if the other 97% are, uh, uh, know the truth and their conscience is awakened to the truth, everyone has a morality. So it's the 97% that can bring change. But in that sequence of words, after truth, then I believe um, the second thing that comes is voice. But voice can only come when all Aboriginal people are united on the truth and are united in their understanding of what it is that we represent in our meaning as First Nations people. And then as a result of our understanding of meaning and representation, we have agreement to how we progress ourselves politically and legally to what we feel is fair, equitable and, and racially just um, legal equality and just, proper justice. Um, following, um, so if we go truth, um, voice, Truth complete, truth unanimously accepted, voice understood and accepted and united um, on behalf of the people, um, more or less going back to tribal governance like um, Michael Mansell and others have said for years and they represent it still through the Aboriginal Provisional Government. Um, after um, truth and voice, um, when it comes to treaty, I think the biggest priority for ourselves as First Nations people is we need to treaty back together, one nation group to the next nation group, treating about what it is that we are, what it is that we're entitled to, and, and, and how we, what it is that we mean and how we represent that meaning politically and legally and socially and culturally. Um, once we've re-treated back together then, we decide. We, we don't let our, um, the governments continue to tell us 
we decide upon what we believe is necessary in our next step. And that might mean that we decide that we want to treat, start the treaty with colonial government. But in our um, efforts of treating, I believe it should be on our terms. And that's where reparation comes back into the whole equation because this country's been occupied through conquest of war, uh, undeclared war that our people have resisted and fought against and we fight against it continuously until this day through our resistance. So when we talk about reparation and I'll, I'll, um, I'll, um, I'll credit the person that uh, told me the information, Mary Graham. Mary Graham said, we are eligible for sovereign debt. Sovereign debt means everything that's been taken off our people and everything that's been done to our people without our approval or consent. If we look at the extent of what sovereign debt involves, and I go back to our ancestors, the ancestors that paid the hard price throughout the frontier area, they paid the ultimate price of loss of life and and, and suffering the brutality and the inhumanity and indignity of colonial injustice. They paid the highest price. And a lot of people say now, um, look, we just need to deal with things from now on. We need to leave all of that what happened in the past in the past. And for people like me and a lot of others, and like we just need to look at a lot of our society and how dysfunctional it's become. Um, and I believe that's a result of genetically inherited or post-traumatic genetic um, stress inheritance. And it's, it's caused so much dysfunction for our people. And a part of the, the whole process of reparation is recognising that through a truth exposure process and a, a historical truth commission and even implementation into education curriculum from primary to secondary to tertiary, um, that it needs to be recognised the effects and the impacts that are being caused upon ourselves and the, the high price paid by our ancestors throughout colonial history. And I say that we can't just dismiss the past and we can't just accept that our ancestors were just a, um, a, just a, a necessary commodity and that they should be considered as more or less um, colonial um, collateral damage because they're worth far, far more to me because of my connection to them than just being accepted as that, being worthless, something we just need to just leave in the past and not give a value to. Um, so when we consider all that and we get ourselves right back up to now and the fact that there's this possibility for reparation, the sequence of those words being truth, um, voiced and treaty and then possible treaty, the other thing we might consider as being a possibility is we may decide that we need to challenge the validity of colonial sovereignty over the validity, validity of our ancient First Nation sovereignty as the original owners, the original um, nation of nations that existed for millenniums prior to colonialism. And these are questions and issues that you young people are now will probably have to face and you will probably have to make the generations after you aware of because it's something that's not going to be resolved for ourselves in the five-year or ten-year period. It's something like the era we've just finished discussing. It's going to be have to be resolved over the next several generations of our people in what direction they take and how they value themselves and value their history and what they see as being fair, equitable and proper justice for our people. As always, it's always a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, when I yarn with you and when I share space with you as well, Unc, and, you know, just want to appreciate uh, that as well. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can, um, I can get you back on the podcast as well to share some more uh, stuff as well with us. For sure, Bo. And, and just an ending, I'd like to, um, again, say congratulations to our young people. And I'd like to offer my support and my encouragement because even though times have changed, circumstances haven't changed the mark, haven't, haven't changed the real lot, um, politically and legally. Um, I'd like to encourage these young people and, 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 and congratulate you on your efforts already. But in my encouragement, encourage you to continue to resist. And we had the theme introduced a few years ago about the colonisation. I'd also like to encourage you to decolonise your, your conscious state of being um, from that colonial oppressed state of being back to a, a free First Nation state of being. So 
that you can see in with clear eyes and clear conscience the reality of truth and the reality of where we are and what we are now and my support and my encouragement to use young people's continued resistance mm. and I thank you both for giving me this opportunity to share on your podcast and uh, anytime I'll speak to you more thanks totally, both totally no thanks that Unc um, also if you are just sort of um, clicking on um I'm speaking with Uncle Dara Ruska. It's episode 18 of Frontier War Stories. Uh, and just for people out there listening as well, um, you can, don't forget, you can uh, donate to the podcast by becoming a patron. Um, if you just Google Frontier War Stories, um, it'll take you to Podbean, which is the, the platform I, I, I stream from. Uh, my main streaming platform that I upload the podcast to. Um, up in the top right corner, it has the option to become a patron where you can donate you know, uh, a weekly uh, amount. Um, no little or, or, or too much, is, is, it's up to you. Uh, and you can also uh, donate uh, through PayPal, which is, is a link uh, on my Instagram uh, which, where you can uh, find some more stuff about the podcast as well. Um, as I mentioned, it's Uncle Dale Ruska, episode 18 on Frontier War Stories.